This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. The compelling new Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon, is a sprawling, sweeping, three-and-a-half-hour-long crime saga, romance, and western. It's told through the lens of a marriage. Lily Gladstone plays an Osage woman, and Leonardo DiCaprio is the low-level white thug who professes to love her. Meanwhile, he continues to do the bidding of his uncle, the crime boss who's stealing from and murdering her people. I'm Aisha Harris. And I'm Glenn Weldon. And today we're talking about Killers of the Flower Moon on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Here with me and Aisha today is Sam Yellowhorse Kessler, a producer for NPR's Planet Money. Welcome back, Sam. Hi, Glenn. Also here with us is film critic and senior film programmer at the Jacob Burns Film Center, Monica Castillo. Hey, Monica, welcome back. Hello, glad to be back. Glad to have you. Killers of the Flower Moon depicts the systemic exploitation and slaughter of members of the Osage Nation by whites. Lily Gladstone plays Molly, an Osage woman in 1920s Oklahoma. The Osage are at this point a wealthy people having struck oil at the turn of the century, and that wealth has attracted corrupt white men like Robert De Niro's William King Hale. Hale passes himself off as a generous benefactor to the Osage, even as he encourages his men to marry Osage women and murder them for their money. Leonardo DiCaprio plays Hale's nephew, Ernest. When he arrives in town, Hale sets him up with Molly and the two marry. The easily swayed Ernest quickly becomes enmeshed in Hale's expanding criminal operation, which leaves a trail of dead bodies in its wake. Killers of the Flower Moon is directed by Martin Scorsese, who co-wrote it with Eric Roth. It's based on David Grant's 2017 nonfiction book of the same name. The screenplay went through significant changes following Scorsese's consultation with members of the Osage Nation. We'll talk about that. Killers of the Flower Moon is in theaters now. Monica, you've seen this film twice. You've read the book. What do you think? I think it's an incredible work of adaptation, taking the book, which was more of a crime story, more about the formation of the FBI, and then switching it completely to like more personalize it to really show the sort of domestic terrorism that was felt and reverberated throughout this community. I mean, it's heartbreaking. The performances are incredible. You're, it's almost like the book in that you're sucked in from like the jump uh, mm-hmm. and you're invested deeply in the story, but it takes even some more, you know, surprises and changes. And it's really lovely to see on the big screen and what Scorsese has done with his team yeah. is really remarkable. That's, yeah, I, I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads on Zoom. <laughs> Sam, what'd you think? Yeah, I agree with everything. I thought it was fantastic. It was exactly the movie I expected Martin Scorsese to make as soon mm. as I saw the trailer. And here is the hot take that I'm going to bring to this podcast today. It clocks in at around three and a half hours. I believe it should have been longer. Okay. Uh, it got me captivated in my seat the entire time throughout. It was just like the past couple of extra long movies that I'd seen in theaters, Oppenheimer and Avatar The Way of Water, mm. where they make a case for that length. But even still, I saw moments where there could have been characters expanded upon, moments expanded upon. Also, just like obvious edits, like obvious parts that were missing some parts. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it would be so much better served if this could have gone on 30 minutes longer to make sure that everything was included. Um, but other than that, I just thought this was a fantastic, fantastic movie. Okay, Sam's got a hot take. Aisha, I know you feel like this could have used an intermission. What else do you think about the film? <laughs> I mean, that was my hot take. My, my counter <laughs> yeah. to his hot take was, sure, but... 
let's bring back the intermission, yeah. people, because my bladder by the <laughs> by two two <laughs> hours in, two and a half hours in, I was like, okay. Um, no, I loved this, and you know, my two main takeaways, and this is will probably come to no surprise of anyone who has studied Scorsese and over the years, he's mastered the art of depicting. American greed and how that uh-huh. American greed manifests itself and everything from mean streets to Goodfellas to Casino to more recently Wolf of Wall Street. Like, and this is him older, wiser, and still working at the top of his craft. And I love to see the way that he takes that familiar story of American greed and manifests it uh-huh. um, in this story that is borne out through pure misogyny, pure white supremacy. And insidiously so. My other main takeaway is that the perspective here, like in all Scorsese films, always matters. And I think that the fact that this is focused so deeply on the marriage and the relationship between the white people and the Osage people in this time and how Scorsese and his writers and creators, they all sort of bring in this history, this fruitful history, including the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, which was kind of just happening around the same time as the events in this film. It's just really masterful. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you all more about this because I, I loved it. In three and a half hours, you're right, Sam. It could have been longer with an intermission. <laughs> it could have been longer with an intermission. Look, um, this film is very smartly narratively structured. There is a secret at the heart of this film that continues to grow and fester and destroys lives. And it has to come out sometime because that's the nature of secrets. We know it's going to come out. How is it going to come out? That's what is driving every scene in this film. And when it does come out, it has a lot to honor, right? Because a lot of very bad things have been watching. We've been watching them unfold for the past three, three plus hours. It completely justifies its length. This film is exactly as long as it needs to be. Yeah. Now, historically, if you were thinking of, you know, where you turn in American cinema for films about compelling, rounded, complex women, Scorsese wouldn't be on the top of that list. I think that's fair to say. Uh, with some very notable exceptions, his women tend to be more reactive. They tend to be secondary. So help me talk through Lily Gladstone's performance and the character of Molly. How'd she factor in? I would disagree with you about the reactionary women of Scorsese's film because there are exceptions yeah. to that. And one of them now we get to add Molly to mm-hmm. that canon because mm-hmm. I think we see her arc and how she's so active in trying to solve the mystery of all the murders around her and how she's active in advocating for her community. You know, she's still trying to keep her family together, even if like internally her sisters are having their own issues. She's still like the glue that's holding this family together. Your heart just breaks for her every time something awful happens. I mean, that's the part of the movie that you follow the most. Yeah, your heart breaks for her and she is a victim, but I the movie doesn't victimize her. Right. And I think right. like you said, Monica, that's that's really crucial to that depiction. Yeah, that she keeps soldiering on after all of everything that's happened to her is, you know, a testament to that real life character that the role is based on. Yeah, and Lily Gladstone. Oh yeah. <laughs> and Gl- Lily Gladstone. <laughs> yes. Just yeah. knocks yeah. it out of the park. Yeah. I mean, she's a movie star, a Lily Gladstone, because mm-hmm. she is Giving you, I'm onto him, but I also love him. I'm wary of him, but I'm making the choice. Mm -hmm. I'm not a dupe. I'm not naive. This character is much more wise about people than Leonardo DiCaprio's character is, which is, let's get to it, a low bar because um, (laughs) this is one of the questions I have about this movie. It's clear that DiCaprio is attacking this role by constantly underscoring at every turn that this guy is a worm. He's weak. He's amoral or immoral, completely malleable. And, you know, you mentioned likability 
Monica, like that is a Hollywood trope. You know, you, your main character needs to be likable. Save the cat. You know, it has to do something likable. And, you know, you can say, well, okay, it's Molly who is our empathetic character. Molly is the person we care about. So it's okay that he's – that uh, DiCaprio is playing somebody who's so weak. But Scorsese does not ascribe to the theory of likability. He is interested in creating characters who are flawed such that we would even consider them evil. Um, but they're compelling. They're colorful. Can you build a movie around a character like Ernest who is as weak and warm? Like, I didn't find him compelling. I didn't find him colorful. Can you build a field around him? I think that the fact that he is so gullible and easy to manipulate by the William Hill character played by Robert De Niro, to me, is the compelling aspect. And I feel <laughs> as though this was the writer's way of sort of getting into commenting on the current state of affairs with men and especially white mm-hmm. men in this country who are easily susceptible to believing terrible things that they think will help them get a leg up in this right. world. And I think the key sort of counter to the Leo DiCaprio character is Molly and the fact, like you said, she know like she knows that he is partially after mm-hmm. for her money. There's a great scene in the early days of their courting where she invites him in for dinner and they have a whole conversation. And at one point she's like, coyote wants money. And they have like this moment where they're like, (laughs) they're they're both smiling and her eyes, my goodness, her, I talk about this sometimes, like for me, actors, often the eyes just give everything. And Lily Gladstone's performance with her eyes alone is just captivating. Um, But then on the other side of that, you also have Robert De Niro who is giving, he is not, this is not scenery chewing uh, De Niro here. We're not getting like analyze this De Niro. We are getting very just like insidious, dastardly, underhanded sly. And I think those two characters juxtaposed against Leonardo DiCaprio's character makes that his character's somewhat evolution, I guess you could call it an evolution throughout the film to me, more way more interesting and fascinating. And I think Leonardo DiCaprio just does a really good job of playing a kind of dumb, easily manipulated <laughs> yeah. character, for me at least. Yeah, and and you mentioned how he like plays off of these other characters. I was also thinking, I was fascinated the whole movie, or, or at least the, the beginnings of it, uh, with the Bill Smith character played by Jason Isbell, mm. who is this other Leonardo DiCaprio character. He is somebody who has married into this Osage family, yeah. ostensibly to inherit some wealth. Pretty explicitly, actually, pretty, you know, at a certain point, it becomes very clear that that's exactly what he's doing. And they just have this very uneasy relationship. And I think Jason Isbell kind of shows exactly what that should look like is like the opposite of Leonardo DiCaprio, not causing trouble, just trying to be this presence who someday when something happens to one of the sisters uh, inherits all this money. But the two have this kind of like, you know, two, two wolves going after the same prey kind of like relationship with each other. That I think, uh, especially Isbell, just brings this like very uneasy presence to the film. Monica, do you have any thought about De Niro here? Because as Aisha mentioned, he keeps it light. He's playing affable. Even when he's disciplining his subordinates, he's not going full Capone. Mm-hmm. Right? So what would you make of this performance? I mean, I thought it was a delicious performance. He's really eating it up. And he's like very clearly invested in the work. I think you see that with how measured he is in every scene, how friendly he is originally to Leonardo DiCaprio's character when he first comes back from the war. 
And then even how he interacts with the Osage people, mm-hmm. he's like, oh, I'm a friend to the Osage. Like very much like historically William Hale, you know, espoused himself to be. And then of course, mm-hmm. you know, there's something so much more sinister that doesn't really show up until you get further along in the movie. And it's it's really incredible um, how close he plays it until you're almost, you know, to the point where like, wait, you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, that whole performance is like it's really giving, you know, a certain former president saying like he's a friend friendly with the blacks and all that. Yep. stuff. it's like, oh, OK. Yep. <laughs> yeah, the more he says it, the more guilty you're going to feel that he is. <laughs> yes. Now, it is easy to picture what this film could have been if Scorsese and his team had not met with the members of the Osage Nation. It would have been much more like the book, a very straightforward story of the former Texas Ranger Tom White, who gets re- recruited by the Bureau, which is not yet the FBI, but will become the FBI, played here by Jesse Plemons to investigate the murders. It's possible, I think, to go through this film and figure out which scenes wouldn't have been there before in the previous screenplay, where the Osage get to speak directly almost to the camera in various gatherings, like at councils and at funerals. These scenes are doing work, work that is not strictly narrative in the Hollywood movie Mm -hmm. sense, but in terms of texture and context and setting and if there was a, was a Marvel film, we'd call it world building, <laughs> that feel completely part of the weave to show you, A, that they were victimized, but they are not this monolith of passive victims that only white men can deliver justice to. They're, they get a voice to become a people who deserve justice. You drop those scenes out, you have a much thinner, pulpier, less satisfying film. The original version of this would have had Hoover giving directions to Tom White in Washington, (laughs) D.C. And instead, it's these council meetings that you're talking about where they are talking internally about what this means for their nation and the history of their nation and how they're going to survive this going forward. It's just that kind of like subtle reversal that, you know, decenters the U.S. nation and recenters the Osage nation in this story. And that just makes it feel so much more like you're, you're in it. You're in Oklahoma. This film really... When you're an hour in, hour and a half in, it really feels like you are so sucked into this world and it feels so alive and vivid. And I did want to talk about how just like refreshing it was to see Native people in this, you know, historical drama depicted in that way where they are modern and they, you know, they drive cars and they laugh and they gossip and Mm -hmm. ways, you know, ways in which they are not normally depicted in these movies where they're either secondary tertiary characters or painted with a very broad brush. And it just kind of felt like, Wow, like it, it, I've never, it, it felt so, so true to me, just like how people would be living at this time and in that place. And then there's, of course, there's like the irony that the film starts off by showing that they struck oil and then they were able to prosper in a way. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, this reminds me so much of the Tulsa Massacres. Yeah, right. And then, of course, it turns out that is the plot of this movie, except it's not a overly violent, giant, singular event that happens. It's a piecemeal. It's happening over time. And, and that's, to me, what makes this so fascinating. It, it was a story I was vaguely familiar with before watching the film, but to see it unfold and to show a different side of the way racism um, can impact people in ways that are are both grand and small, I think, is, is part of what makes this movie in the way it centers their voices as well. Um, I, I love the fact that, you know, narration is a big part of a lot of Scorsese movies. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes a pivotal moment will happen where the narration switches to a different character. And here we sometimes get 
Molly's point of view and we hear her voiceover narrative. I don't know if that maybe came out of the Osage Nation consultations, but to have her voice specifically be heard and understand where she is coming from um, really strengthens the fact that this is, you know, a as Sam, we were talking about this earlier, it's not a white savior movie, even oh. though it could come off like that in hands that are less uh, skilled and less interested in any other narrative besides a white savior narrative. Yeah. One, one thing I might say it, just in criticism of this movie is that sometimes I, I felt that maybe it didn't go far enough to explain how widespread and, and systemic this was, that it was, mm-hmm. this wasn't like one night where everything, you know, all the bad people came out and did the bad thing. Mm-hmm. It was a, a process over years where an untold number of, of Osage people died by not just William Hale's hand. Yeah. This was a common practice that was more or less enabled by the government yeah. because there were details that they just kind of brushed over, like how the Guardian system works, like the fact that people who are full blood Osage were deemed incompetent and unable to handle their own money. Mm-hmm. And just this system really set them up to incentivize these murders and for people to cover it up and experience no consequences for it. And there were just kind of moments where I was like, you just I, the, mo- the f- movie felt like it was moving past that in a way that I wasn't entirely comfortable with. But I don't know if that would have served it better to pause and make sure that there was a mini PSA in the film to tell the audience just how bad this was. Because again, this was so enrapturing and there is already so much included in this movie. Spike Lee might have done something like yeah. that, I imagine. <laughs> and they're, they're friends. Look. Well, I could only imagine what Spike Lee's version of Killers of the Flower movie is. <laughs> oh my gosh. It, I, I'd be interested. <laughs> this is where I'll put a plug in for the book because even though the book does take a very different approach and mm-hmm. the way that it includes the voices of Osage people then and now are completely different than the way Scorsese approached it. It does take that bigger, larger view because what happens in the term of research is that there's so many more unanswered questions. A lot of the murders that you see in the first couple of minutes of the movies, uh, there's not an answer for. They're Mm -hmm. just part of the stats. And that's it. That's all the families are left with. So you get to explore that more in the book and kind of really get a sense for how widespread and endemic it was. Yeah, like there is a lot of violence shown in quick succession uh, in this movie. A lot of it is racialized violence and a lot of it is very, very gory. And I I do worry if somebody has not seen a Scorsese movie before and goes into this, uh, especially indigenous people and especially Osage people, to see this, these deaths depicted so gruesomely it can actually be very jarring and at times it did it did make me a little bit uncomfortable mostly as a squeamish person mm-hmm. when you have read the book and you have produced stories on this like I have the realization partway through that these are real people and you're seeing a depiction of their death like I'm almost certain that there are descendants of these people watching the, going to see this yeah. movie mm. and it just kind of made me just a little bit more uh, cautious about kind of like treating this like other Scorsese movies where uh, a lot of it is fictionalized um, and you can kind of brush over it like, oh, they're all bad people, you know, hurting each other. In this case, it felt a little bit jarring to go in and see that. Kind of tied with that, I did want to give a shout out to uh, Kara Jade Myers, who plays the character of Anna Brown. Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. Yes. She's only in the movie for a brief time, but you really get a sense of a life that was snuffed out way too early, way before her time, yeah. just because of the targets on their back. And it's it's really heartbreaking. Ugh, 
Her screen time is just so effective. Oh. I also wanted to give a shout out to uh, Robbie Robertson, who does the music. Yeah, the music is great. There is that sense of foreboding, that mm-hmm. feeling unsafe in a, in a crowded space. Like he really, you know, was able to musically illustrate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it repeats throughout the film. And it's, I think it was really beautifully done. It's very subtle. There's like this, yep. I wrote it in my notes and I can't, I'm not going to be able to replicate it out of memory, but it was like, da 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 but uh, and then like every so every once in a while a harmonica would kind of put, come in, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like the Wah! harmonica. It was <laughs> it was way more subdued. Um, and I I thought yeah, Monica it was just so effective because it it was just right. constantly playing underneath scenes, but it, it it didn't overtake the scenes. It was just like a nice addition. Well, I mean, we all dug it. We think it's masterful. Tell us what you think about Killers of the Flower Moon. Find us at Facebook at facebook.com/pchh. Up next, what's making us happy this week? This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares how cash can be part of a balanced savings strategy for investors. Oftentimes people think of their cash as the money they're using, But when there's a high-rate environment, your cash can also be a form of savings. So savings can sit in your cash account, and savings can sit in an investing account. And on average and over time, investments go up. But in a high-interest rate environment, you can get a more predictable return in a high-yield savings account. And so investors can choose both strategies, an investment strategy as well as a cash strategy, to both protect your principal because cash doesn't go down the way markets can, but also to earn a high yield. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Now it's time for our favorite segment of this weekend. Every week, what is making us happy this week? Monica, kick us off. What's making you happy this week? I was very fortunate that this past Friday, Bad Bunny dropped a new album uh-huh. <laughs> uh, after much anticipation after Un Verano Sin Ti, which was his super hot record last year. And then now we have Nadia Sabe Lo Que Va a Pasar Mañana, which is kind of like his return back to Latin trap. It's so much fun. I'm dying to get back out there to dance to it uh <laughs> it is just yes. that kind of music and i'm already hearing it on the streets uh, wherever i walk in brooklyn so it is time nadie sabe lo que va a pasar mañana thank you very much monica great pick yeah there's people who here who share your tastes because we just did an episode about that on pchh sam what is making you happy this week one word slotherhouse. house <laughs> 
the movie available on Hulu. Oh my God, I saw it this weekend and was like, come on, tell me more, tell me come more. On. No, it, it is it is well worth the the ninety minutes or less that it takes up. Uh, if you need a, if you need a free from three and a half hour movies, uh-huh. go to Slaughterhouse. It is about a college senior who finds herself with what seems to be a cute and cuddly sloth who she hopes will help her become her sorority president. Okay, you did say sloth. I wasn't sure if you had like yeah, a list yeah, going on. Right I was like, wait. <laughs> One word, sloth. No, it's a sloth. I've seen the poster. Uh-huh. I've seen the poster. It's okay, a sloth. Okay, I have not seen this. Okay. The tagline is, don't rush, die slow. Oh my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> as the film progresses, the sloth comes to kill all of her sorority sisters and to trap them in the house as the plot becomes more and more convoluted to allow a sloth to be able to pull off all of these hijinks. Uh-huh. It is about as schlocky as a horror movie could get. I firmly believe that if everybody saw this movie, this sloth could become the new Baby Yoda. It is so adorable. <laughs> it has so many great, jiffable scenes. Uh, go out and watch it. Make this thing huge, please. Oh that my is, goodness. Uh, you Love know, it. Sam, when you said one word, Slaughterhouse was not the word I was expecting. <laughs> I think that's safe to say, but that is Slaughterhouse on Hulu. My God. Okay. Aisha, top that. Well, I don't know how creepy that movie is, but continuing on the sort of creepy vibes, if you're looking for a slightly darker <laughs> movie than Slaughter has, I highly recommend Birth Rebirth, which is available for rent on VOD. It's a psycho horror thriller directed by Laura Moss, and it stars Marin Ireland as a pathologist who's determined to figure out a way to resurrect the dead. And then Judy Reyes, who you might recognize from Scrubs, mm-hmm. plays a maternity nurse whose five-year-old daughter dies unexpectedly. So the daughter becomes like basically the prime subject for this pathologist's experiments, and she and the mother are working together to bring her back to life and also keep her alive. And it's this like weird kind of gross. There's a lot of body horror in it. So if you're not into body horror, maybe don't check this out. But it's kind of a Frankenstein tale with the maternal perspective, and it's all about the lengths that a mother will go to to protect her child. It's creepy. It's dark. Fun is not the right word. It made me think a lot. And it made me just really engrossed by the performances and just how dark and twisty this movie is willing to go and how like far left field of ethics of any kind that the movie is willing to go down. So, yeah, definitely check it out. Uh, I think it's great. Perfect Halloween themed movie, Birth Rebirth. And like I said, it's available for rent on VOD now. So somewhere between Slaughterhouse and Birth Rebirth, we have the entirety of Spooky Season kind of just available <laughs> over you on the spectrum. Yes. yes. Uh, what's making me happy this week? I have fallen down a Taskmaster rabbit hole. I feel more strongly about this recommendation than I have in many a time. I envy the people who have not seen this show. I envy the people who haven't heard of it. Here's all you need to know. Taskmaster is a British comedy game show. There are now 10 episodes per season. Uh, over the course of each season, five British comedians, different set of comedians every, every season, compete to successfully perform a series of tasks that are assigned them by the Taskmaster. The important thing is... The tasks in question are very lo-fi, very hands-on. They are also equally as importantly, very stupid, pointless. They are silly. They are dumb. The comedians make complete fools of themselves trying to accomplish them. Tasks like build a catapult to launch this shoe into that bathtub or make a music video of a nursery rhyme you have 15 minutes or conceal this pineapple somewhere on your person or make this coconut look like a businessman. Hugely dumb. That's the takeaway. So we watch their attempts uh, on some location. Then we cut back to them in the studio where they're sitting with the taskmaster and his assistant. The taskmaster 
proceeds to assign them points for their efforts and make fun of their attempts, which is the meat of the show. And then the contestants are there trying to defend, you know, how they did and why they made the choices they did, which are often stupid, but often sometimes brilliant. I love everything about this show. The 16th season started up a few weeks ago. You can watch all 15 previous seasons on YouTube here in the States. And that is what's making me happy this week. Taskmaster on YouTube. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. Sam, Yellow Horse Kessler, Monica Castillo, Aisha Harris, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Liz Metzger and edited by Mike Katzup. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy, and Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all next week. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear. It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR.